Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle and thank you for joining us at www.sonic-cinema.com. This year I turned 40 years old and to commemorate the occasion, I wanted to do a special podcast where the list is uh, called 40 Movies That Have Shaped My 40 Years. They're not necessarily the greatest films I've ever seen. They're not necessarily the best films I've ever seen although there is a nice mix of both of them in there. Um, They're basically the movies that I think have had the strongest impact on me over the past 40 years. And uh, it's a pretty diverse list. It's a pretty uh, surprising list in some cases. In a lot of cases, though, not so much if you're familiar with me and my taste in movies over the years. So uh, let's go ahead and begin the 40 movies that have shaped my 40 years. Being a child born in 1977, I think I would be remiss if I did not include Star Wars Episode IV, New Hope, George Lucas's original Star Wars film that launched the phenomenon that we are still uh, seeing today with The uh, Last Jedi. And uh, it's probably the most obvious uh, choice on this list because of the fact that if you know me, you know how much of a Star Wars fan I am how much I love Star Wars, how much it means to me. Uh, The thing that I think separates A New Hope from the other films, and I will concede that I do think Empire as a whole is probably a better film, but I think A New Hope resonates stronger with me because of the fact that it is the quintessential uh, hero's journey and with uh, Luke Skywalker played by Mark Hamill. I mean, that's, that's something that really resonates with me strongly. It resonated with me when I was a kid. It resonates with me now. And just seeing the way that character transitions from film to film and the possibilities of what we're going to be seeing with the character in The Last Jedi coming out later this year has me truly excited to see uh, what is going to happen with this franchise in the uh, future, and in particular, the characters that I grew up knowing and loving. And so the first film on here is the most obvious one. It is Star Wars Episode Four: New Hope. We're going to fast forward a few years uh, to 1982's uh, E.T. the Extraterrestrial by Steven Spielberg. Uh, another somewhat obvious choice, I think. Um, if you ask most kids in my generation, I think they would certainly agree that this was one of the movies that shaped uh, their childhoods and really uh, they enjoyed probably more than some of their other some of the other movies that came out in the 80s for us um, for me I think the film still resonates with m- me because of the fact that uh, the bond, first and foremost, between Elliot, played by Henry Thomas, and E.T., is uh, so powerful and so strong. And the idea that Elliot was this kid that he was having a hard time finding his place after his uh, parents divorced. And I think that's not that my parents did not get divorced, but I think after I moved to... uh, Georgia with them in 1988. I think that part of the story probably resonated with me pretty strongly. Um, 
as did uh, the next film on this list, which I'll get to shortly. But uh, E.T. is probably one of the perfect uh, family films. Not necessarily including Disney in there, but even if you include Disney, I think it's probably one of the closest uh, family films to being truly uh, perfect as far as filmmaking, as far as the way the characters interact, as far as the way the story resonates. It's just flawless filmmaking by Spielberg. It's still one of his greatest films. So that's E.T., The Extraterrestrial. Up next uh, is The Karate Kid from the director of Rocky, starring Ralph Macchio and Pat Morita. Uh, this is another film that sort of like E.T. I think resonated with me a lot when we moved to uh, Georgia, uh, much like Daniel moves out with his uh, mother for work. I, uh, you know, I moved down here with my parents for work and I had a hard time fitting in. And I think this film really resonated with me in that respect. Um, and I did uh, take up karate for a brief instance, uh, inspired by this film. I didn't get very far, but it was something I did enjoy. And uh, I did get a lot out of it at the time, even though I didn't really continue it too much. Um, so the next list, film on this list, and I will admit, probably of all of the films on here, I mean, I, I will admit, like, I think my first real movie crush, more than anything, was probably Elizabeth Shue's character in this movie. Um, and this movie, in, in addition to that, I think what... And the other things I mentioned earlier, I think one of the important things about this movie, for me personally, is that it is, uh, it's the film that probably solidified my appreciation for what's what I call the underdog sports movie. Um, that is probably one of my guilty pleasure genres in uh, cinema, and I uh, still it still gets me every time now. And uh, the Cry Kid, I think, really put that into my DNA pretty early on. Um, so number three on this list is The Karate Kid. Uh, number four is another movie. All of these first few movies are movies that I think most people in my generation would say, yes, absolutely, this is a movie that I grew up loving. Um, this one is Richard Donner's The Goonies. And... I think the thing I like about it is that it is is an action adventure, kind of like Star Wars, but for kids. And it's it's got some serious moments. It's got some serious uh, adult topics, which I like. And it doesn't necessarily shy away from them. But at the same time, it's ultimately a kid's adventure. And I think that's the thing that really enjoyed about it more than anything when I was growing up. I mean, now it's nice and nostalgic, and it's really got entertaining characters. It's got entertaining uh, story, entertaining... Uh, just entertaining uh, aspects of it all in general. The humor, the adventure, the suspense, the action. Uh, it's just a really well-done movie. It's one of the finer examples, I think, of Richard Donner's value as a filmmaker and why I think he's one of the more underrated uh, directors of his generation. Um, 
But the Goonies is something that, in sort of the same way of E.T. and the Cry Kid, it it's something I think that spoke to me as far as being a relatively shy kid, but wanting to have more of a life to a certain extent than I did, especially when it was uh, when we moved down to Georgia. Um, and I think the Goonies uh, really spoke to me about that, as well as um, when, I, when I would get involved with Scouts later, I think just the adventure aspect of that was fun. So uh, four, number four on this list is Richard Donner's The Goonies. The next two films on this list, I have to give thanks to my mother, Victoria Scuttle, for introducing me to at a relatively young age. And one thing you'll notice very early on, uh, those first four movies were on chronological order because, I mean, that's basically how I saw them. But you'll notice, especially as the list goes on, and I start to go into the movies that I have really resonated with me before that came out before I was born... Uh, I'm approximating as close to the time frame, the sort of order that I saw the movies in as I can, not necessarily the year that they came out. And that's something you'll notice right away with these next two choices, because they both predate uh, when I was born. Uh, and there are movies that my mother turned me on to, and there are movies that I still absolutely love and enjoy now. Uh they're both comedies. The first one is Mel Brooks' Young Frankenstein, which uh, my mother and I, I think, have uh, very much soaked so much into our DNA that we can, to a certain extent, we can uh, we can predict what lines are coming up next. And it's Young Frankenstein is probably one of the greatest comedies I've ever seen. Um, it, it's not necessarily in the top five, but maybe it's in the top ten. Um, just uh, Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder's affection for the Frankenstein movies and the way that they poke fun at them. The performances by Wilder, Madeline Kahn, Terry Garr, Marty Feldman, uh, Peter Boyle, Cloris Leachman, everybody in these movie, this movie is just absolutely flawless and hilarious. And when I finally saw the James Whale Frankenstein movies, Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, it grew my appreciation for what Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder were able to do in this movie grew because I finally was able to understand just how closely they mirrored the Frankenstein story in general and just how much fun they were having at the expense of movies that are absolutely fantastic, and James Whale made really entertaining Frankenstein movies, and just the affection that young Frankenstein approaches its subject with, it's something you don't really see out of, ri out of parody nowadays. And uh, it's one of those things that Mel Brooks, especially with this and Blazing Saddles and some of his earlier parodies, I. Uh, Lost to a certain extent. I do enjoy Spaceballs, but I will definitely be the first to admit that is not on the same level as Young Frankenstein or uh, Blazing Saddles. But um, it's it's one of those 
things where it's like you're definitely not going to see a movie like Frankenstein now. Uh, I think the closest anybody has really come recently is a scary movie because of how much it mirrored uh, the first Scream. But even that pales in comparisons to what Mel Brooks did in Young Frankenstein. Uh, the next film on here is another one that my mom introduced me to. It's also a comedy. Uh, that's her genre, her favorite genre. Mine is more science fiction fantasy. Um, but Young Frankenstein and Frank Capra's uh, adaptation of the off-Broadway play Arsenic and Old Lace are two films that really sort of solidified some of my comedic sensibilities, some of the things that I enjoy in comedies. And especially Arsenic and Old Lace is a very dark comedy. If you don't know the premise to it, Cary Grant plays a reporter who gets married. He goes to tell the two older ladies who raised him uh, and adopted him and raised him. And he finds out that they are actually, uh, they have actually been uh, killing men, uh, lonely men, lonely old men with no family over the years, uh, sort of as a service to, um, so that, you know, nobody's going to miss them, so it's like we're just going to kill them and bury them in the uh, cellar. And that is the kernel of humor that drives the entire film. And it's it's very screwball. It's very dark comedy. It's very broad in terms of the performances. But the performances, especially by Cary Grant, uh, Richard Massey, um, Peter Lorre, are just spot on and really funny. Uh, their movie, their performances, I really enjoy. It's a movie that I continually enjoy. It's been a while since I've seen it, but when I saw it a few years ago with a friend of mine, it still holds up extremely well for me. And so that is Frank Capra's Arsenic and Old Lace. Um, next up, we've got a couple of films from 1987 that could not be more different. It's very surreal to think about the fact that these movies are 30 years old, but... Uh, they're movies that I watched as a kid. One makes sense that I probably will have watched it. The other one, eh, I could possibly wait a couple of years, but, um, nonetheless, uh, The Princess Bride by Rob Reiner, uh, based on the book by William Goldman is, this was a tough, this was a late edition and admittedly I probably could put Rob Reiner's Stand By Me on here and, it will have made more sense, but, and it Stand By Me is a great film, but The Princess Bride is just, it's sort of along the lines of Star Wars and the Goonies, where it's like, it, it really hits your, hits, it really ingrains into your memory the idea of what really good storytelling, really good adventure storytelling can be. And those three films really codified that for me, I think. The Princess Bride, it adds a great deal of humor, and it's a very funny movie, uh, as you expect with not only Rob Reiner directing, but also the uh, cast with Christopher Guest, uh, Mandy Patinkin, um, 
Harry Elwes, Robin Wright, Billy Crystal, Carol Kane, uh, Chris Sarandon, so many, so many uh, talented actors and so many uh, well-cast actors. I think that was the most important thing. Even Andre the Giant is really funny in this, and Wallace Shawn is terrific. Um, it's it's a movie that it's it's a quintessential fairy tale, and to a certain extent, I consider it a chick flick. But the fact of the matter is, it's like there's so much that's just really appealing on all levels. It surprised me when Entertainment Weekly considered this a cult movie like ten years ago. I'm like, it's not a cult movie. It's it's a movie that is. It's a movie that so many people love. It's a movie that it it doesn't have a cult following. It's a genuine classic. It's kind of it's along the lines of the Adventures of Robin Hood and those type of movies. And it's like, why? How is this a cult classic? So many people love this movie. Um, for so many reasons, and uh, I I can I continue to love it. I love the music. I love the story. I love the way the story is told with the rap around with uh, Fred Savage and Peter Falk. Um, I love the performances. I love the uh, sense of humor. I love the adventure. I just love every aspect of it. And so the Princess Bride was a natural choice for this. Up next is uh, John McTiernan's Predator, and it's an R-rated movie, but I saw it when I think I was 10 years old. By that time, I had seen a couple of R-rated movies. Um, this and this one I'm adding to sort of go, to sort of acknowledge a period of time when I first started to watch R-rated horror movies. Because to a certain extent, Predator very much follows in the same line of a Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, in terms of that slasher um, picking people off one by one. And it has that structure, but it's basically a science fiction action movie about an alien that has uh, landed on Earth and is basically picking off a group of soldiers and mercenaries uh, led by Arnold Schwarzenegger and Carl Weathers. Uh, it's probably the Predators, without doubt, my favorite movie monster of all time. Uh, I just love the different types of powers it has. I love the way different ways that it can kill you. I love the fact that it can camouflage itself. I love the fact that it can sneak up on you and kill you that way. I love the mono mono has with Arnold Schwarzenegger. The end of the movie is one of my favorite action sequences and actually one of my favorite sequences period of all time. And, uh, this, this movie, it, and it does, ha like I said, it does, it does carry a lot in common with the, uh, slasher movies of like your Friday 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street but one of the things that I like is that you there's serious even though Arnold Schwarzenegger's the star in this I do feel like there's a genuine sense that maybe he will not come out of this alive and that's one of the things that I think I enjoy most about this movie is the fact that there is a sense of doubt as far as whether uh Arnold will uh survive in that so um 
the next film, the so that is John McTiernan's Predator. We're going to fast forward a few more years and uh, go to Rob Reiner's A Few Good Men, which is the first serious sort of adult movie I have on this list. And, I mean, I think it was the drama, uh, serious movie, the first one that really uh, resonated with me. And a lot of that had to do with the uh, circumstances in which I saw it. Um. I saw it with my parents and my uh, grandfather after shortly after Christmas. Uh, he was my grandfather was visiting us and uh, for Christmas, and we we went to go see it. And it's a movie that I really enjoyed. I still enjoy it. I watched it a few months ago. It's still a damn good serious movie. It's got great performances by Tom Cruise, Demi Moore, Jack Nicholson. Um, so many others, but uh, one of the things that really stood out when we watched it is um, my dad, my grandfather was having a kind of having a difficult time figuring out, well, if Jack Nicholson's character and Kiefer Sutherland's character were ultimately responsible for the death of uh, Santiago in that movie, why were Dawson Downey dishonorably discharged, and why did why did they still get in trouble? And the whole point of it, of course, is the fact that it's like, well, they're supposed to fight for people who aren't able to fight for themselves, and that includes somebody like Santiago. And that was a that was an that was an one of the first times where I think there was a really interesting, um discussion that I remember having with my family about the the basic morality of in instilled in a film. I mean, I think that's one of the first times it really uh jumped out at me. And it's we ended up we still ended up we all loved it and uh we still watch we ended up watching it every christmas uh up until the time that my uh grandfather passed away in 2000 uh when we didn't watch it anymore so uh that was that was an interesting experience to have that type of discussion about that type of movie and it was probably the first time this was just when i was starting to really a few good men was around the time that I started to really go into movies on a regular basis. It would be a couple of years later when I really started to watch movies critically and start watching movies from an analytical standpoint more intensely. But A Few Good Men was, I think, one of the first examples of a movie that there was real discussion about beyond, oh, well, it was good, it was bad, and it's like, what was about it? What about was significant? I mean, that was one of the... And uh, A Few Good Men did that. And uh, that's... So, in a way, that's one of the first movies that really made me think about um, the, the morality of a movie and sort of what a movie is saying. And that's, that's something that doesn't necessarily happen all the time. Uh, next up is another Steven Spielberg film, but it is uh, definitely, it, it is without doubt his best film. Uh, it is Schindler's List. 
Um, to a certain extent, I kind of wanted to put Jurassic Park on here too, but Schindler's List is significant for a lot of reasons. Um, apart from the fact that it's just a phenomenal film, um, the interesting thing about it, this was Schindler's List was where I really started to think about really follow movies, follow the Oscars and all that stuff. And the lead up to Schindler's List was a big part of that. Uh, seeing finally seeing Schindler's List was a big part of that. Um, the thing about Schindler's List is, and it's interesting because even though I saw it when it first came out in Georgia, it wasn't until a few years later, and I thought it was amazing when it first came out. It was a fantastic movie. It was a great movie when it first came out. The emotional impact of the film that the film had on me didn't really connect until I saw it on network TV a few years later when they first ran it on network TV with very low interruptions and all that stuff. And I was in I, a lot of it had to do with the fact that I just wasn't mature enough as an individual to appreciate the weight of the story of Oscar Schindler and the Holocaust. And I was looking at the film from a critical standpoint. I wasn't looking at the story from an emotional standpoint. So, and I had seen it a couple of years in between my first time seeing it, my one time seeing it in theaters, and then on network. But it was alone in my dorm room watching it on network TV and just being, just having that scene, that setting. And the film just wrecked me. Emotionally speaking, the film just wrecked me. And I I just, like, the weight of the story for the hit me, I think, for the first time. And it it was it was the turning point, it was kind of a turning point in the way I looked at films, but also in the way that I looked at that in particular film. And uh, Schindler's List is just an unforgettable film. I mean, you know, it's it's considered Spielberg's best because it quite frankly is. I mean, he's made so many great films over the years, but Schindler's List is uh, the finest piece of storytelling he's ever done, uh, quite frankly. And it's it just is unforgettable as an experience. Once you once you really are able to once you're mature enough to give your heart over to the film that's when it really clicks with you and really the the wave of emotion that that film brought out of people when they saw it in theaters really sticks with you and uh so uh the 10th film on this list is steven spielberg schindler's list Continuing on, uh, with uh, we've got a trio of 1994 films coming up. The first one is Alex Perez's The Crow, which for a long time was my favorite movie of all time. Still in the uh, top three to five movies of all time for me, favorites-wise. Um, 
starring the late Brandon Lee, based on James O'Barr's uh, graphic novel. This is a movie, and one of the things I didn't mention with Predator that I should have is the fact that Predator was a movie that I saw based on what other people were telling me about the movie. They said they saw it, they really liked it, that I should see it. So that's how I ended up seeing it. The Crow was kind of the same way. A few friends of mine, uh, friends and family of mine, had seen it, they really liked it. I had bought the soundtrack, the, the song soundtrack, and loved it. I listened to it as much as I could over the summer. I didn't actually see the film until it came out in May, but I didn't actually see the film until the last day it was in discount theaters uh, nearby before I had band practice one day. So it's that was I saw it at the discount theater. It ended up being the last day it was in theaters. And uh, I was immediately taken by the film. I was immediately taken by the imagery, the performances, uh, just everything about the film just resonated with me uh, incredibly. And uh, so when I saw it on, when it came out on video, I start, I ran it as much as I could. When, as soon as I saw a copy available, I bought it. And I basically had, I believe I did uh, officially run a, a VHS tape of that movie into the ground. Um, and it is my favorite, it was my favorite movie of all time for a long time. Not because I was necessarily like into gothic type movies or anything like that. I really wasn't. It just resonated with me on an emotional level that that type of movie hadn't really resonated with me before. And Brandon Lee, it, the movie is was amazing. It's a shame that that ended up being his uh, most famous movie as well as his best movie um, and, of, and his last movie. Uh, so Alex Bruce's The Crow uh, starts off our trio of 1994 films. The second one is Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction, which... Like The Crow, like Predators, another movie that friends had to tell me that they enjoyed it in order for me to get to see it. Now, The Crow and Predator, I was kind of interested in beforehand. Pulp Fiction, I'll be honest, the trailer did not excite me at all. I was not looking forward to it. I didn't understand what that movie was going to be. I hadn't seen Reservoir Dogs. I didn't see it until after I saw Pulp Fiction. Um, I did, it's like the crow. I listened to the soundtrack. I, my friend Ron, uh, let me borrow the soundtrack. I made a copy of it and I started listening to it over the, uh, Christmas break. Uh, one time my mother and when I was out, my mother and I went to go see it and it was probably the most laughs I ever had watching the movie, watching a movie in theaters at that time. It was just, the dark comedic streak of that movie st has stayed with me for all time. And it it's a movie that's nothing but fun, but it's also deeply serious in some of its morality. And that's one of the things that strikes me as interesting. It's one of the most original movies I think I've ever seen. Um, 
it's still one of the best movies. It's still one of my favorite movies. And uh, so Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. It, it goes back and forth as to whether that movie or Jackie Brown I consider my best uh, Quentin Tarantino or favorite because Jackie O'Brien is phenomenal in its own right. But in the end, I mean, Pulp Fiction uh, wins out for me. So the third of our uh, 1994 films on this list is uh, Tim Burton's Ed Wood. And admittedly, the reason this is on there is it's a movie that I loved when I first saw it, but... The reason I love it as much as I do now is came much later. It came much later when I had started trying to make films for myself, make short films of my own. And Ed Wood and the way Tim Burton tells his story in this movie is very inspiring. Uh, even though he is had no discernible talent whatsoever as a filmmaker it's hard not to admire Edward for the courage he had in trying to make his movies anyway. And that's one of the things that I think stands out about Edward and the way Burton tells his story in, in general. And it's like, I've ever since then, and especially even though, and I've never seen at the time I, when I saw plan nine from outer space, Glenn or Glenda bar of the monster, it was, first of all, it was fun watching those movies after the fact so I could sort of like point to, oh, hey, that they did that, they showed that scene in Ed Wood. But, you know, I will never consider Ed Wood the worst filmmaker of all time. First of all, I've seen way too much Mystery Science Theater 3000, which we'll get to later. But more than that... um, I love the passion that he brings to brought to his films. And it's like, I do believe that was probably very genuine and not necessarily just something that uh, Tim Burton and the writers brought to the, the uh, character. I think it's something that was probably pretty genuine in Edward. Cause uh, honestly, I mean, there's, there's a lot of love in his movies. So, I mean, the fact that, um, I I have a hard time making fun of him as a filmmaker, calling him and thinking he's a bad filmmaker. I mean, yes, he was a bad filmmaker. He's hardly the worst, though. But I do, you know, the the affection that you see in those films uh, goes a long way to redeeming them. Uh, and that one I didn't see in theaters. I did see it uh, after the Oscars, though, and love Martin Landau's performance. And, I mean, there are so many great performances in that, but uh, Tim Burton's Ed Wood uh, closes out the trilogy of uh, 1994 movies that um, have really helped shape me over the years. So the next film is uh, from 1995. It's Mel Gibson's Braveheart. And this is because of uh, how... Because of the... uh, drastic change in reputation Mel Gibson has had over the years. Um, it's, it's tough to, well, it's not tough. I, I, I tend to really, uh, subscribe to, you know, being, trying to separate the art, art from the artist. Um, 
And uh, Braveheart is a movie that I've just really always loved from the first time my mother and I saw it uh, and advanced screening in 1995. It really just was such a thrilling movie to watch. It was such an epic movie to watch. The the way the storytelling was done, it was just wonderful. The performances were wonderful. I can see more of its flaws now the more I watch it, but it's still a story it's still a story that resonates with me and that's a big tribute to what Mel Gibson brought to it as a storyteller. Um, more so than anything else, though, the reason, a big part of the reason this film is on here, other than the fact that it's still one of my favorite movies of all time, is the fact that <clears throat> James Horner's score for Braveheart, uh, is the score that inspired me into doing film music on my own. And it's the... Score that I listened to, and I by this point I had already really gotten into film music as a genre, but James Horner's score uh, is the moment where I'm like, wow, I really wish I could write something like that. And that's what inspired me to want to compose my own music. And, uh, and so when I got into college, when I started going to Georgia State, I mean, I eventually did start writing my own music, and uh, Braveheart was one of the films that inspired me and one of the scores that inspired me to do so. Um, next up is a, a, a... Admittedly, it's a bit of a cheat, but it is uh, Jim Mallon's uh, 1996... Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie. Uh, this this is obviously an adaptation of the uh, cult TV series Mystery Science Theater 3000, where a guy and two robots make fun of cheesy movies. Um, one of the things that I... And so I'm using... Apart from the fact that I do love the movie on its own, I'm using the movie here to illustrate... Um, the impact, uh, the personal impact on me that MST3K has had on me as a film critic. And I feel like because of Mystery Science Theater, because of Rift Tracks and Mac Titanic, I, I have a greater appreciation for filmmaking, for the flaw, for understanding the flaws of filmmaking, for seeing the good qualities of filmmaking. I'm somebody who I'm much more interested in what movie does right than just trashing it if, it, if so much of it doesn't go right. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from Mystery Science Theater 3000. It, 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 it really shows that you sh can have, you can make fun of a movie, you can make fun of a movie, but also, but not be cruel about movie. I mean, be able to appreciate uh, filmmaking on an artistic level while also uh, lampooning uh, people who don't do it very well. And so that's a big part of the reason that Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie, is on this list. Um, next up is probably my favorite movie that nobody else really knows about and that is uh, Dan Ireland's The Whole Wide World. It's based on a book about 
a relationship that the author of the book, Novelin Price Ellis, had when she was younger with uh, Robert E. Howard, who was the creator of Conan the Barbarian. Uh, Novelin and Robert are played by Renee Zellweger and Vincent D'Onofrio, uh, respectively. This is a movie, and it's interesting because when I first uh, got into the dorms at college, they had cable. It was relatively basic cable. Um, they had this one channel, and I don't remember what the name of it is, but it went away relatively quickly, unfortunately. This one channel just had nothing but movie trailers on here. And I saw the trailer for The Whole Wide World on there. That's where I saw it, because it already played at Sundance. Um, but I didn't see it until I saw it at the uh, cinema at on Georgia State's campus uh, at the time. And that's how I saw a lot of movies for the first time. And The Whole Wide World was one of them. And... It was just a, it's a really sweet and loving story about not even just a romantic relationship. There is obviously, uh, tension is a possible romantic relationship between Robert and Novelin, but a friendship between these two uh, people who look at creativity differently. One who's a writer, very much, very much an imagination somebody who has an imagination and tells strong stories and somebody who looks at reality and is is interested more in reality and appreciates stories where somebody who in Robert's case has a great storytelling imagination but who sees uh everything wrong in uh in reality and the de the the tension between those two worldviews is one of the things that make a relationship between Novelin and Robert Howard unsustainable but it's also one of the things that makes this movie so unforgettable for me and D'Onofrio and Zellweger are absolutely amazing they're probably some of the best work either actors done and uh it's just it's a really beautiful film if you can find it i wholeheartedly recommend it it's the whole wide world unfortunately it's not better known i wish it were because it's such a great movie um and uh it's it's one of my all-time favorite movies quite frankly it's one of my 10 favorite movies i think uh, just because of the fact that it it just tells this amazing story of creativity and the uh, tumultuous uh, mind of an artist. And, you know, there have been times where I've identified very much with Robert as a creative person. Um, and I still do to a certain extent. And I appreciate the relationship he has with Novelin and the the fact that she is as good a friend to him as anybody could be under those circumstances. And that's something that's really meant a lot to me with uh, friends of mine, uh, female friends of mine in particular, uh, especially when I was going through uh, 
deep bouts of depression and stress and anxiety in my earlier years. So uh, Dan Ireland's The Whole Wide World um, continues to inspire me now. Up next is uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. And this was re-released in 1996. Unfortunately, I missed it in theaters. I really hate that I missed it in theaters. Um, but I saw it for the first time when it came out on video. And when the restore, restored version came out on video. And it immediately became one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. And it is, for me, the best movie ever made. Um, not just from Hitchcock, but in general. It's amazing. It's an amazing multi-layered piece of storytelling from Hitchcock. And one of the boldest things he's ever done as a filmmaker was by letting everybody in on the secret of Judy's identity. Judy, played by the amazing Kim Novak, uh, before when she is uh, found by Scotty, played by Jimmy Stewart, and he is finds himself drawn to her because of the fact that she reminds him of this uh, woman, of the woman, Madeline, that he loved and uh, feels responsible for her death. Bernard Herrmann's score is unbelievable it's haunting it's beautiful it's just it's one of the most important pieces of film music ever in terms of not just individual craft but just as the way it brings the story together is just un unreal and just one of the finest pieces of film music ever in my opinion and Hitchcock's storytelling is so confident, so uh, nakedly personal. Um, I mean, it's something that people only after he passed away identified in Vertigo, but it's it it is plain as day just how much this movie meant to him and just what he was uh, laying people in on as far as himself. And so uh, Hitchcock's Vertigo is something that. Uh, Stands out to me as one of uh, easily one of the most significant pieces of uh, filmmaking in my life, just because of the fact part a big part of it is because of the fact that it is the uh, best film I've ever seen. But another part of it is just because of the fact that it it is an example of how performance and writing and uh, music and visuals just really can come together into a truly uh, rapturous uh, cinematic work. Um, and with that in mind, we actually go into a slightly different direction, but a movie that I do feel like holds uh, a lot of the same traits in Andrei Tarkovsky's Stalker. Uh, this is a movie that actually I was led to because of The Crow. A video review of The Crow mentioned Stalker in terms of a possible influence on the uh, some of the visual <coughs> parts of the film. And so 
After that, I was interested, and I didn't get a chance to see the movie because the video review came out in 94. I ended up not being able to see it until 1997, which is why I finally found the movie on video. And it was my first instance with uh, Tarkovsky. And most people, even big fans of Tarkovsky, admit that it's probably one of his most difficult films, and that is absolutely true. Um, the stalker is, takes place in a, uh, wasteland, post-nuclear wasteland. Uh, it doesn't specifically say post-nuclear wasteland, but is by, it is obvious by the end. And it has three people going to a mysterious room in the middle of this wasteland in the hopes of their uh, dreams becoming reality. And it's a very mystical film. It's a very spiritual film. It is a very laborious pace, to say the least. Even as a Tarkovsky fan, even as a fan of the movie, it's impossible to... uh, It's impossible to watch this movie without occasionally feeling like you know, checking the watch. But at the same time, you're still drawn into the visual and music and audible uh, landscape uh, that Tarkovsky brought to the film. Um, if if you, I know there's some reading on Stalker that's fascinating if uh, you're interested in... If you've ever seen the film and you're interested in uh, reading more about the film... Uh, that you don't really, if you don't really know a lot about the film, I know it just came out in Criterion, and I cannot wait to get that for myself um, on Blu-ray. But uh, Stalker's a movie, it, it's a movie that requires patience, but also rewards patience. Uh, it's not the first movie on this list that will, uh, that that applies to, but at the same time, it's also... Uh, it it's a film that uh will uh definitely challenge viewers as well as uh reward them i feel like next up is uh from 1997 it's john woo's face off um and uh this is probably my favorite pure action movie of all time um it was it's easily the best film John Woo ever made in America. Uh, it is comparable, I think, to his best work in uh, Hong Kong. Uh, John Travolta and Nicolas Cage go as over the top as I feel like they've ever gone as performers, and I feel like they they accomplish exactly what they wanted to accomplish in doing so. And it's just a brilliant movie to watch in that respect. Um, it's a lot of fun. It's got some great comedy, great outrageous over the top action, humor, uh, character work again by Travolta and Cage. And, uh, it's, it's a movie that I, my mom and I saw opening night and I, I was really pumped for this movie when it first came out because of the fact that I'd become a big John Woo fan after Broken Arrow and before Face Off. I'd started to see his Hong Kong work and started to appreciate his Hong Kong work. So I was all in on Wu. And uh, Face Off, 
uh, rewarded that, and I found myself crying. And I basically said, damn you, John, <laughs> at the end of the movie because of how, how much it affected me on a personal level. And uh, it, it's just such... It, it's, it's the best of what Hollywood can be as far as adventurous filmmaking, as far as big-budget filmmaking far as just committing and going for broke on a movie. And it's one of the most absurd movies to ever come out during the summer. And that was a weird summer, too, because of the fact that you had Richard Donner's conspiracy theory, which is kind of out of character for him. But you also had Luke Besson's uh, Fifth Element, which I actually just watched again last night. And uh, was, there, there were some very unusual in Robert Zemeckis's, uh contact. A lot of really adventurous movies that came out that summer. And uh, Face Off was probably the best one of them. Uh, although all of them certainly had their merits. Um, up next is uh, Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ. Again, this is approximately the order in which I saw those movies. Um, like Schindler's List, uh, Last Temptation of Christ didn't really have the full impact on me until later. Um, I saw it around this time. I really liked it. I thought it was interesting. I was just getting into Scorsese's work, and it was a compelling film. It was an fun. It was an interesting film to watch, it wasn't until I started watching it again in my 20s, mid to late 20s, and then early 30s that I really considered the emotional impact and the spiritual impact that that film had on me. Um, I'm somebody who is not specifically religious. I consider myself uh, spiritual but not religious, even though I was raised Presbyterian to a certain degree. Um, and it's, I have had a very up and down, um, relationship with organized religion over the years. Uh, I do think Last Temptation of Christ is a movie that kind of helped me reconcile my feelings on religion and to see that there was very much some positive in religion at a time where I was feeling very bitter about the idea of organized religion because of uh, political things I had seen. And uh, I think Last Temptation, along with other films, but especially Last Temptation, it's my favorite religiously themed film of all time. It's one of the best Scorsese films. Um, it really it made me recognize something unique about uh, the story of Christ that I never really got from religion. And to be fair, I mean, I wasn't like the most devout religious person when it came to going to church, and I still am not, but it, it gave me a lot to think about in terms of religion, in terms of the story of Jesus, in terms of the way that Jesus's story can be interpreted and the 
the interesting thing is, while I'm aware that it's not based on the gospel, I nonetheless feel like Last Temptation of Christ um, this is a this is the Jesus as portrayed by Willem Dafoe and uh, realized by uh, Scorsese and his collaborators in this film is one that I can really get behind and feel like there's something there's something special about this story. And it's the fact that it emphasizes the human aspect of Jesus as a po as well as the divine. And the fact that those two aspects of him part of parts of his being coexist and the importance of them coexisting. I mean, that's something that really come hits home with Last Temptation. And uh, you know, Martin Scorsese's film uh, moves me still twenty years, t- roughly twenty years or so after I saw it. Next up on the list, we have Stan- two movies by Stanley Kubrick. Uh, they are Two Thousand One: Space Odyssey and The Shining. Uh, 2001 Space Odyssey, I loved it when I first saw it. I didn't completely understand it, but I loved it nonetheless. Um, This is one of the most uh, inspiring movies I've ever seen from a, as a composer. Uh, The way that Kubrick uses sound and uh, the classical music in this film is nothing short of remarkable. I have listened to Alex North's score, which is very good. Uh, Both the soundtrack that is presently on the uh, film, as well as Alex North's soundtrack, inspired my own creative endeavor into in uh, doing my own alternative soundtrack to 2001, which I started in 2001, but I did not finish until 2010. Oddly enough. called Beyond the Infinite, and that is available online on iTunes and other uh, other outlets. Um, this is the uh, high water mark for science fiction, uh, flat out, and it is uh, just a great uh, piece of science fiction, of intelligent science fiction, and so uh, it goes without saying that 2001 Space Aussie was going to be on this list. Uh, the Shining was not a movie that resonated with me quite as much when I first saw it um, in roughly 1997-1998. Um, but I kept coming back to it and coming back to it and coming back to it. And it is is my favorite horror movie of all time. And a lot of the same reasons that 2001 is such a masterpiece, the way... Uh, Kubrick uses the camera the way Kubrick uses images to tell the story, the way he uses music, the way he uses sound. Um, Not so much the performances, although the performances by Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, and Danny Lloyd are absolutely phenomenal in this movie. Um, This is another movie that, from a musical standpoint, has inspired me a great deal. And uh, when I do watch horror movies, um, every October, a lot of Octobers, I've been inspired to write my own music because of what I've seen. And The Shining is one of those films that has inspired me more often than not. 
I uh, going to uh, 1998, and we have Alex Preuss's Dark City. Uh, because of my love of The Crow, this was a movie that I was looking forward to um, almost from the second I first heard it, heard about it, uh, because of the fact that I was such a Preuss fan after The Crow. And uh, when I went to go see it opening day and I read Roger Ebert's review of it, got really excited about it, went, ran to go see it after classes opening day and absolutely loved it. I thought it was a uh, fantastic movie. And uh, it's still one of the uh, great science fiction films, not just of the modern era, but also of all time in the way it deals with... Uh, the personal stories um, of uh, John Murdoch, played by Rufus Sewell, uh, his wife, Emma, uh, William Hurt, Kiefer Sutherland. Um, I never had, I at the time, I never really had the, a big issue with the uh, narration that happens at the beginning, like other people did, but having seen the director's cut, um, I definitely understand it. it holds up extremely well without that narration. And, uh, I mean, part of it could be because of the fact that I've seen it so much with the narration and I understand what's going on, but the fact of the matter is it's uh, it's just a fine piece of storytelling in general, and the visuals are unbelievable. The music is terrific. Um, it's It's the movie that I felt like The Matrix wasn't. Uh, when that movie came out a year f year later, and uh, Alex Bryce's Dark City definitely had to be on here because it was one of those movies that I was just like face off. Uh, I was really anxious to see because of my experiences with the filmmaker previously. Uh, next up, we have Saving Private Ryan by Steven Spielberg. Um, this movie, uh, I I remember uh, having just such an overwhelming emotional experience uh, when I first came out. I saw it by myself because uh, my dad re really wasn't into movies, and I think he was at the gun club or something like that. And my mom was up in Ohio. Uh, but the four of us... Uh, including my grandfather, did go to see this around the time he came down for my birthday that year and uh, really struck a chord with uh, him and my father. I believe it was the last movie my father saw in theaters. Um, and, I mean, he wasn't much of a moviegoer, but uh, the, the film just really uh, hit home with them in a positive man manner in terms of the way it dealt with uh, war and uh, the morality of war. Um, and uh, both of them were veterans, my dad in Vietnam, my grandfather in World War II. Um, I've never had a problem with the bookends. I feel like the bookends really work extremely well. Um, as great as the battle scenes are, I do feel like the the best scene in the movie still is uh, the scene when, um, at the beginning, when we see the clerk who is doing the uh, letters 
to the uh, family to let them know that their uh, family members have died. And she realizes, oh, hey, this, oh, what's going on with the Ryan family? And it's just, it's, it's a scene that stuck out when I first saw it. And it's a scene that uh, continues to resonate when I watch it now. And uh, just the way that Spielberg doesn't hit every, anything on the head, but just lets it unfold um, quietly and confidently is one of the things that I really love about the film. Um, next up is Buster Keaton's Sherlock Jr., which I know I saw around this time. Uh, this is my favorite movie of all time. And it is... The reason it's my favorite movie of all time, other than the fact that it's very funny, it's very uh, terrific uh, Buster Keaton filmmaking, is the fact that it's also a story that means a lot to me because of the fact that it is about a projectionist who dreams himself into the movie that he's showing. And... For the hopeless romantic, because the projectionist played by Keaton um, has just had his loved one uh, jilt him after he's been uh, framed for stealing a watch. Um, there's there's a lot of things that really spoke to me uh, over the years watching it and still speak to me as somebody who uh, did projection as well and was always interested in that part of uh, movie watching. And so uh, Sherlock Jr. really spoke to me um, when I would do it, when I would watch it over the years, other than the fact that it's just a really entertaining movie. It's a really fun movie. And uh, so that is the reason it's my favorite movie of all time, is because of that personal connection to the story, which is inherently silly and kind of loopy. It's, it's still... Um, something that strikes a chord with me. And uh, that is something that not a lot of silent films have done, and certainly a few have done it as well, or as effectively as uh, Sherlock Jr. Um, up next, we have Trey Parker, South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. And this seems like an odd film uh, for me to choose because I... While I've watched South Park over the years, I haven't been a hardcore fan of it for a long time. Um, but the fact of the matter is, it's like this film, as, as a critic, as somebody who is interested in the film industry, as somebody who watches closely the film industry, you can see the inherent absurdity of the film industry and what it deems appropriate for certain movies and what it doesn't deem appropriate come through in the uh, insanity that is uh, Trey Parker's film. And uh, the musical numbers are just brilliant. The social commentary is brilliant. I remember I, remember I did work at movie theater with an usher, and it's like we, we were very specific. Oh, it's like we had to make sure that nobody got into this R-rated movie, and you had to check IDs. I got checked I, with my ID, and I was 21 years old at the time. Um, but, uh, you know, and then when uh, a couple weeks later, like American Pie came out, and then 
I've lied shut. It's like, oh, go on, hey, go on it. That's fine. We're not going to check your ID. It was specifically for this one. And I think it was, a lot of it was because of the attention that this movie put on the uh, MPAA and the absurdity of the movie rating system that we have in America. And uh, which still baffles people overseas. And believe me, it baffles us as well. Um, up next is uh, Milos Forman's Amadeus, and this was a late entry to this list. Um, I first, even though I had heard about the movie, I hadn't seen it until a friend of mine from college recommended it. And uh, I saw it, and it was, it was one of those things where sort of like uh, Schindler's List and The Shining and other movies on this list, the impact on me would come afterwards um it was a movie that i greatly admired i thought was terrific filmmaking thought was a terrifically entertaining film but the the story of the creative artist and the story of a uh, brilliant artist against a uh an establishment that didn't understand them and the rivalry between uh, Mozart and Salieri in the film uh, didn't really, the overall impact of that did not hit me until years later after I'd really started to uh, grow creative, creatively as an artist as well and somebody who... Uh, takes art very seriously and tries to do the very best I can. Um, it's, it's something that, uh, it's, it's something that speaks to me on that level. It's great filmmaking in general, to be sure. But, um, it's also something that, uh, it's also something that you, you see the self-destruction of creativity as well and of the creative individual as well in uh, both Mozart and Salieri because in in their own ways they're self-destructing themselves. Mozart with his uh, rebellious and reckless nature, uh, Salieri because of his obsession with Mozart and how great he is compared to how mediocre Salieri is. And uh, that's one of the things that really sticks out to me over the years about Amadeus. Um, next up is Edward Norton's Keeping the Faith. And this movie is on here for a few reasons. The primary reason is because uh, it was very much a comfort food movie for me uh, the summer my grandfather died. Uh, my mom and I had gone to see it, and we enjoyed it. It was a fun movie. Um, before I went up to Ohio and uh, went to uh, visit my grandfather and be around him um, as he was going through treatment uh, for cancer, and uh, this was a movie I went to often. Uh, the first time we were up there, uh, I saw it, I think, seven times total in the theater, and six of those times I was up in Ohio. Um, it was a movie that just really, that that title says so much, Keeping the Faith, um, and that's something that I really took to heart 
Um, not from a spiritual standpoint, not from a religious standpoint, but from an emotional standpoint. And uh, it's something that I really needed to see, to see these these people in a tricky situation, in a difficult situation that tests them emotionally and see how they react. And uh, the performances are good. Edward Norton does a very good job with the movie. Um, but there's always been something deeper um, when it comes to uh, that movie and something that really spoke to me uh, when I was going through that with my grandfather. And then later, it sort of morphed into a, uh, it kind of morphed into a reflection of how I viewed relationships, how I viewed dating, how I won to be in a relationship at the time. And uh, it's it's something that, it, it, it was a, uh, it was a film that really was important to me when it came to, um, well, this is, you know, this is, uh, this is sort of what I want in a relationship. I mean, my, my, my interests, uh, grew and expanded the more I grew, the more I matured as an individual, but ultimately just the difficulty of, um, being in love at times was something that really, uh, resonated with me about this film. Uh, that is Edward Norton's Keeping the Faith. Um, up next, we have another Spielberg film. Uh, it's the fourth one on this list. And, I mean, he is my favorite filmmaker, so it actually does kind of make sense that he's on here so much. It is AI, Artificial Intelligence. Um, just like the previous film uh, was a good uh, sort of uh, comfort food for me when my grandfather was sick and uh, eventually passed. AI artificial intelligence was a movie, especially at the end, where you have uh, David being able to have one more day with uh, Monica, his mother. Um, when I first saw that with uh, my mom and uh, my friends Ron, Dave, and Mike, um, that sequence in particular, even though uh, a lot of people criticize Spielberg for it, I loved it because of the fact that it it felt like that was the type of thing that I felt like I wanted, I felt like I was sort of having that moment with my grandfather at the time. And I felt like that was that was something that, that was part of my grieving process. That was something that I needed to see to sort of go through and progress my uh, grieving process. Uh, the movie itself is, it's flawed, but it's nonetheless, it's just as good a science fiction movie as 2001 Stalker, and I've uh, connected the three at times in terms of themes, in terms of uh, the way they use images, the way they use music, the way they uh, help broad personal and spiritual stories um, in varying ways of, uh, of storytelling, of scope, and uh, just how there's, 
I feel like those three films, there's a lot of connective thread. And, uh, you know, it's not easy to see, but, I mean, if you're as familiar with those films as I am, I mean, you do start to see that there's um, there, there could be some validity to uh, seeing things that way. Uh, next up, this is the uh, 30th film on this list, is another film by Tarkovsky. Uh, it is Andrei Rublev, his biopic um, about the famed Russian icon painter, although uh, most people will admit that it's not actually sp directly based on, ev on specific events of his life. I mean, there are some uh, biographical... Uh, moments in the film but the fact of the matter is it's ultimately it's ultimately about russian history and a particular point of russian history and uh how how the artist in the type of situation that rublev finds himself uh reacts to that situation and this was one of the last films i think i had seen of uh Tarkovsky's, if not the last one, as far as his feature films. And uh, even though it's missing a lot of the subtitles, and even though um, it can be sometimes, like all of his films, a little laborious to watch, um, it's nonetheless a fascinating movie to watch. And... Uh, <clears throat> And as as an artist, uh, like a lot of these films, there's a certain part of that that really uh, speaks to me um, in terms of the way Tarkovsky uh, present, presents Rublev and the crises of faith in his art and in religion that he has uh, during some of these key moments in Russian history that Tarkovsky is illuminating. And the movie is just, the more you watch it, the more you get sucked into it and the more it resonates with you, um, which is the case with pretty much every Tarkovsky film. Um, there are so many Tarkovsky films that it's like, I've seen the first time, they, they were good, they were, I appreciated them, but at the same time, it wasn't until afterwards, the more I watched them, the more I thought about them, that they really uh, did something significant that um, stayed with me. Continuing on with the list, we come up to 2002 and Michael Moore's Bowling for Columbine. Um, this is where I sort of let the cat out of the bag of my political affiliations, but the fact of the matter is, it's like when I thought about this movie, it really did have to uh, be included because of how important of a movie, movie it was for me at the time, and it still is, uh, 15 years later, as far as how we as society... Um, view guns, we as a country view guns, and we as, and the insanity that uh, we sort of have around uh, gun culture in America. And it's 
yes, I understand there's a lot of moments where more fibs with uh with uh the things they stages, the events they stages, like getting the gun from the bank. But the fact of the matter is it's like it's it's nonetheless emotionally true when it comes to uh this uh this country and uh gun violence in a way that still rings true now, unfortunately. Um as much as it would have been nice to see significant change after this movie, it was not meant to be and uh really things have kind of gotten worse in a way um so uh that's michael moore's bowling for columbine which uh haunted me at the time and still haunts me as well as entertains me um next up is spike jones adaptation and uh this is another uh film about a creative artist um who is in the middle of a uh, crisis of uh, conscience when it comes to his art and a uh, crisis of creativity. Um, it's inspired by Charlie Kaufman's uh, attempts to adapt The Orchid Thief, and uh, it's s such a beautifully inventive movie. It's one of Nick Cage's best performances, if not his best performance. Um, Meryl Streep is fantastic and Chris Cooper is fantastic in it. Um, the movie really says so much about the creative process and the writing process in general. Um, that uh, and how hamstrung people can get uh, when the ideas just aren't flowing the way that you would hope that they are. Um, and Spike Jones and Charlie Kaufman uh, with this and uh, being John Malkovich were just a match made in heaven as far as director and writer. And uh, it's a shame they haven't really done anything else since, but nonetheless, uh, this this film still uh, sticks with me to this day is a Spike Jones adaptation. Uh, coming up is, uh, this is actually the last sort of classic movie um, on this list. It is Sergio Leone's The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Uh, sort of like 2001, this is a very much a bench watermark for a specific genre for me, in this case, the Western. Um, I love the imagination Leone has in telling it. I love the scope of it. I love the performances. And of course, I love the music by Ennio Morricone, um, which has been so inspirational to me over the years. And uh, after this movie in particular, uh, as well as getting into some of his other uh, spaghetti western music, I wrote my own sort of musical western, um, you know, through sort of in the alternative soundtrack uh, vein that Beyond the Infinite uh, in 2001 took on, uh, Sonic Visions of a New Old West, uh, sort of does, is sort of along the same lines. And uh, it's one of those things where um, the the music is just so inspiring. It's so much fun to listen to. It's so cr 
creative and imaginative and just such a bold uh, test of a genre. And uh, that's, and I think it's the fact that this is sort of like the 2001 of Westerns in many ways that sort of really makes it resonate with me more than uh, other Westerns, but it's the soundtrack in particular that really stands out with this film, uh, which is Sergio Leone's The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Up next is uh, Richard Linklater's Before Sunset, and this was a late choice. I was originally going to do Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which is an amazing movie in its own right, but Before Sunset is the one that really resonated with me I th- more. Both of them are fantastic movies, but in terms of the point in my life that I was in, uh, my wife is sticking her tongue out me while she should be watching her Twilight movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> and now I have completely lost my train of thought here as she's yeah, walking she has to up. Start over. <sighs> wow. How do you feel about that, Bendu? That that is one of our cats, Bendu. I may just leave this in because this is actually kind of funny. <laughs> Returning to the list after my wife uh, interrupted me last time with one of our cats, we have Richard Linklater's Before Sunset. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, um, I was originally going to put Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind on here, which was a fantastic movie. But the truth of the matter is, uh, Before Sunset just resonated with me a lot stronger at that point in my life. I mean, both films are terrific films. Both films are terrific love stories. Um, But there's something about uh, Jesse and Celine, played by Ethan Hawke and uh, Julie Delby, in the Before movies that just resonates with me a lot stronger. And at the time, Before Sunset really... Uh, spoke to me, and uh, it's it's a film that uh, was probably my one of my favorite movies of the year that year, if not my favorite movie of the year. Um, not sure if I would necessarily say that now, but I mean it's definitely my uh, favorite love story of the year, and uh, just the way that it handles. The tension of them seeing each other for the first time in nine years and uh, what's going on with their lives and all of that just is uh, really powerful to me. That was uh, Richard Linklater's Before Sunset. Next up is a little bit of a different choice, but the fact of the matter is um, it's it's a movie that really uh, helped me out through a difficult time when I was really when I was first starting to understand my issues with anxiety and depression, and it is uh, Christopher Chris Columbus's uh, adaptation of Jonathan Larson's uh, Broadway smash Rent. Um, I'd never seen 
or I wasn't really familiar with the uh, Broadway musical. I'd heard of it before, but uh, this was the when I saw it in theater, the movie in theaters, uh, it was the first time I had really, uh, I had really uh, seen and heard the uh, music before, and I really loved it. And uh, it's just such a, it's it's such a flashpoint for a particular time in uh, New York City, but it's also just a really great story of a lot of people who are going through uh, specifically difficult times in their lives and uh, <clears throat> finding, trying to find inspiration uh, wherever they can. And that's a story that really spoke to me uh, when it came out, and it still speaks to me now. Um, it's Chris Columbus's, uh, Rent. And I will say, uh, to sort of go along with, uh, 2001 and Good, the Bad, and the Ugly as far as being inspirations to me, uh, creatively speaking, um, after my grandfather died, I'd started to write a piece of music that would sort of look at my emotional, uh, the uh, emotional journey I went on after he passed away. And uh, <clears throat> I was having a hard time with the ending of it as I was uh, working around this time. And uh, one day I was in the car. I was, it was a time where I was going through a really uh, depressed era time and really anxious time in my life. And uh, I listened, the song Will I was playing uh, when I was driving into work to do something one day. And I just had this uh, eureka moment. And uh, that really inspired me to uh, conclude the piece and the inspired the conclusion of the piece. And uh, so that was, that was an interesting uh, little benefit of watching the movie at the time. And hearing the music at the time uh, that came out and uh, how it helped me in my own creative uh, path. Up next is uh, one of the few, the only uh, sequel that we have here. Um, and Or, no, sorry, one of two sequels we have on here. But the fact of the matter is, and it's probably going to be an interesting one for a lot of people, but for me, it made all the sense in the world to include it, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 3. Uh, most people uh, did not like this film, and I completely understand it from a storytelling standpoint as a Spider-Man fan and what have you, but it's probably my favorite of the uh, Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies, and maybe even the Spider-Man movies in general at this point, even though uh, Spider-Man Homecoming was really good. Um, and the reason for that is, even though comic book fans are disappointed with the way they uh, did the Venom storyline in this, I, I love it because of the fact that this was a point in my life, um, sort of like Rent, where I was really starting to uh, understand my struggles with anxiety and stress and depression more often than not, more often than I had been, 
had earlier in my life, and I was working on getting my way out of it. And um, Spider-Man 3 was a pretty good reflection of that, and that's something that really I identified with in this film more so than other people. And so this this was a uh, big movie for me to uh, have... Uh, to, to have in my life at this time. And it's, it's an example of, as we'll see in a couple of other movies uh, as we close out this list, that um, the older I've gotten, especially, and by that point when Spider-Man 3 came out, I was about to turn 30, and that was a big part, a big time in my life for... Uh, working out a lot of things I hadn't really worked out before. And so uh, Spider-Man 3 was a big part of that. And so even though it's not really considered one of the better Spider-Man movies by a lot of fans, it's always had very specific personal personal, um, meaning to me. Up next is uh, the only Pixar movie on here. There are a few others I could have chosen, but uh, the one in particular that stands out to me is Pete Doctor's Up from 2009. Um, I've talked a lot about um, my grandfather passing away in the in in this uh, podcast, and uh, this is sort of going to close out that chapter because. Up is it's a great movie. It's one of Pixar's very finest movies. But there was very specific emotional component for me that really just um, made this movie head, no, head and shoulders uh, above pretty much anything else Pixar's ever done for me. And uh, that's the fact that Carl Fredrickson, the Ed Asner character... Um, reminds me a lot of my grandfather and uh he he was when his wife when my grandfather's wife passed away um my f- grandfather started to travel the world and uh he would always when he would come to visit he would always tell us about his travels and about the times they had on him he would share pictures they would take and all that stuff and it was really uh really fantastic um even though it was something that i think i didn't appreciate until uh he passed away as much as i should have um for somebody who was in boy scouts you know uh the character the the kid in up um i saw a lot of myself in that kid and so I had this personal experience watching up the first time where even though I mean it it felt like my grandfather was in the theater next to me watching this movie as well and uh that was something that really it made the movie even more special than it already is and uh the fact that <coughs> this uh this old man who uh 
spent the last year who's spent who is spending his twilight years uh traveling the world getting in adventures you know not indiana jones type of adventures like an up but uh doing something he had already he'd always wanted to do uh inspired by you know the grief of losing his wife and uh having this scout um tag along it felt like that my grandfather and i finally were able to uh share an adventure together and uh that's in that's the uh personal component to up that has always been really significant for me and uh it's the reason that i think above any other pixar movie it will that will always be uh my personal favorite for a lot of reasons, but in particular that reason. So is Pete Doctor's Up. Uh, next up is uh, 2011's Martin Scorsese film Hugo, uh, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. I think it's number three on the list after Sherlock Jr. and The Crow. Um, Hugo shares a lot in common with... Uh, Sherlock Jr. in terms of why it resonates. It's about old Hollywood. It's about the the love and romance of uh, cinema. It's about um, the imagination of cinema. It's one of the best 3D movies ever, uh, especially in the live-action realm. Um, but also just the impact that movies can have on somebody, and that's something that really... I identify with quite a bit in the uh, character of Hugo Cabret and the fact that he's trying to find his place in the world after these uh, tragic moments of his life. And that reminds me a lot of uh, my own my own life in terms of when I've, you know, when I've had struggles, when I've had difficulties trying to figure out what what my purpose in life is. And that's been something of a uh, common refrain to a certain extent in the past 10 years of my life, but it's something that I always find myself striving for is, well, what is my identity? Should be, you know, should I be doing this? Should I be doing that? You know, not completely sure. But um, Hugo is a movie that, like like Up um, and Rent and Spider-Man 3 and Before Sunset, like the last four movies on this list, um, it's the personal component, the emotions that come up during the movie, more even more so than the movie itself, that have really uh, led me to appreciate the movie as much as I do and to rate it as highly as I do. And uh, Martin Scorsese's a great filmmaker in that respect, but uh, Hugo, along with Last Temptation of Christ, are two films that uh, really speak to me more than probably any of his other films have. Uh, we're coming up on the last two here. Uh, the first one is uh, 2012's Cloud Atlas from the Wachowskis and Tom Tykwer. Uh, it is the first time I saw it, my mom and I saw it, we, I thought it was a fantastic movie uh, coming out of the gate. 
it was complicated, which was the nature of the beast with so many different storylines going on. But it stuck with me. The scope of the movie stuck with me. The emotions that the movie and the stories uh, brought up in me stuck with me. And then the more I saw it when it came out on home video and Blu-ray and DVD, it it just really it really sunk into my the the ideas of it the ideas of uh um what we you know of the importance of our legacy and the importance of what we do in this life um and how that affects other people how that affects the world in general that's something that really uh hit home for me when uh i was watching cloud atlas and uh the more and more i would watch cloud atlas and it does help that it's got one of the greatest film scores i think i've ever heard um and it's just such a beautiful movie it's such a such an original uh movie and an original vision and the way that the Wachowskis and Tyke were uh, cast the same char- same actors in different roles in each of the different stories and how one character identifies with another and how the how Tom characters Tom Hanks's characters uh, all um, feed into one another, how Halle Berry's characters feed into one another, Jim Sturgis's characters, so on and so forth. And uh, it's just such an amazing movie. It's one of the best movies I've ever seen. And uh, it's I, I think it's a movie that will uh, justly be recognized um, the, the more it is... Uh, the longer it has, pe- the more people start to recognize it, the more people will realize that it is one of the great movies of uh, the modern era. Um, that is Cloud Atlas. Uh, finally, we are going to uh, close with a uh, another franchise that means a lot to me, uh, much like Star Wars does. This one on a much more personal level. It is uh, How to Train Your Dragon 2 from 2014. Um, Much like Up, this movie came about at an important time of grieving in my life um, and helped me reconcile some feelings uh, with a deep loss that I just felt with my uh, father passing away about eight months previous. Um, And... uh, I did not expect that. I loved the first How to Train Your Dragon when it came out, but, I mean, I didn't really have a personal connection to it. When I saw the second one and rewatched the first one in light of my father's passing, it really shot into focus a completely different um, way of looking at these movies in terms of a son who has a hard time, um, first as a son who has a hard time uh, seeing a lot of himself, of his father in him, 
and then who has to take up the mantle unexpectedly when something happens and the responsibility that goes into that. And it was something that really just hit me like a ton of bricks when I saw the uh, second film at the uh, time I had. Um, and it was eight months after my dad died and it was just that sense of responsibility that need to step up and to, uh, really figure out who you are was important to understand for me personally at that time. And it's something that seeing it, it's amazing that up in How to Train Your Dragon 2 are like, they're both family films, they're both animated films, but they've probably had as strong an emotional connection to me in a much as much of an emotional impact on me as an individual, as somebody who loves movies, and as somebody who finds themselves endlessly uh, recognizing parts of myself within movies, uh, having that as part of my identity is and having these two films really hit home in unexpected ways for me uh, makes them very special to me and so it would be difficult to close this uh, podcast out with anything other than how to train your dragon too um well, that's it. So that is the uh, list of 40 films that have shaped my first 40 years. I could have gone on. Uh, there were a lot of films that some that I already mentioned here that uh, I did not go into that I could have added. That I could have maybe some I could subtracted. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, it's like these were the ones that stood out to me as ones that... <coughs> mean more to me on a personal manner than pretty much any other films that I've ever seen. And I've seen thousands by this point. Um, and so I hope you enjoyed this list. Um, I, in, I, I originally wanted to have this done by my birthday, but unfortunately uh, certain things came up that just weren't, was not able to be, done but better late than never and this is something that i really did want to do and i hope you got a lot out of it i got a lot out of talking about these movies i hope you enjoy these movies i hope you seek out these movies if you haven't seen them and uh i hope that uh i hope that you join us next time um this is brian scuttle with the sonic cinema podcast i hope to have more interviews i hope to have more uh, shared commentaries with uh, friends um, coming up. Uh, <clears throat> I'm not going to do an end of the summer uh, summary this year as far as the summer movies just because I haven't seen a whole lot. Um, I am going to talk about this year at some point movie-wise. Uh, it's been an interesting year. I am going to uh, do another podcast on Dragon Con with that uh, coming up this coming in the next couple weeks. I'm definitely going to do a uh, follow-up podcast about that. Um, I wanted to be more active with the podcast this uh, this summer, but unfortunately it just wasn't meant to be. 
Uh, hopefully, with the fall, it'll, and things are starting to get a little bit more back to normal after some uh, changes. So, um, hopefully, we'll uh, hopefully I'll have more for you, and I hope it'll be something that you guys enjoy. I hope you guys enjoy listening to this, and thank you very much. <laughs>